This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallton, and today we're going to talk to Benjamin Hoy on the history and establishment of a border between Canada and the United States. Ben is an associate professor of history at the University of Saskatchewan. He received his PhD from Stanford University, and he is the author of A Line of Blood and Dirt, Creating the Canada-United States Border Across Indigenous Lands. This book was published by Oxford University Press in 2021. Ben, thank you so much for joining us today. Wonderful. Thanks for having me. I've heard you described as a transnational historian. Tell us what that means and how it differs from what I presume to be a national historian. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting question. So, uh, you know, historians as a profession grew up focused on the nation. You know, when historians are hired, they tend to be hired to teach Canadian history or American history. Our archives are based around nations. Right. So if I wanted to learn about Canada, I'd go to the Library and Archives of Canada. If I want to learn about the states, I'd go to um, the National Archives and Records Administration, Washington, D.C. Our whole profession is sort of structured around nations. But the challenge is most of our lives are not. Goods move and forth, back and forth across borders. People do. Ideas do. Our world, in many cases, transcends or, or moves beyond nation states. And so for me, what a transnational historian is is someone who's interested in, in trying to reconstruct these larger patterns that don't really fit well within these bounds of nation states like Canada or the United States or, or elsewhere in the world for that matter. Now, this is an unusual history uh, because it's the history of a border. And by that, 
I think both you and I mean not the hypothetical line that separates the two jurisdictions, for example, but the real border with its border personnel, its border stations, its surveillance, and the requirements that states place on individuals crossing such lines. What made you conclude that such a history was necessary, and why did you pursue it with such effort? Uh, I know the research that involved was momentous, so why did you devote that big part of your life to this history? Yeah, so, you know, I think like like many histories that are written, this one was born in failure. Um, I, I began this project thinking that I, I had a really simple question and that I'd be, you know, done in a couple years and I could move on to bigger and better things. And, and the question I had was, what is a border and how does it work? Right. And that sounds like it should be something that wouldn't take 10 years of your life and, you know, endless research trips around Canada to show. But but the challenge is that, that I started off looking at the policies that you talked about, about the, um, you know, the, the line that you see on a map. And the challenge that I ran into was every time that I thought I understood what a border was and went back to the archives to sort of check, nothing that I was finding in the archival ref- records ever seemed to correspond to that legal border or that border that appears. Sometimes it's called a logo map, but but the, the map that you sort of see as iconically Canada or iconically the United States, that the lives of the people who lived in the border shadow seemed just so much more complicated. And worse, when I thought I pinned down how the border worked for Indigenous people, that didn't seem to translate very well into the border that I was seeing as experienced by Chinese immigrants or by African Americans or by European um, settlers. In many ways, it it sort of felt like I was seeing a wall of many different heights, that the border just was fundamentally a different institution run by different people in some cases, governed by different laws and affecting people in all different kinds of ways, depending on who they were, why they were crossing, where they were crossing. And so this this very simple question, you know, what is a border and, and how does it operate, suddenly became dozens of questions. How does the border operate in this specific place at this time? And why is it so very different here than it is if you look, you know, a couple thousand miles away on the other coast? So, you know, a lot of this was started off with trying to understand indigenous people and their relationship to the border. But very quickly, I realized that I couldn't really understand this topic without understanding Chinese immigration without understanding uh, Eastern European immigration, African-Americans, that all of these stories were interconnected in this really interesting and I think some often important ways that was being missed by a lot of the really good work that was being done, but that was a little bit more narrow in its focus. Well, I was impressed with the sheer amount of research, including archival research underpinning your book. So how did you go about reconstructing this history of the border? And did you have any models from other historians on how to go about this? Yeah, so th- this this is not a project I'd ever recommend another graduate student try. Um, I, I think it, it started off, it became much more ambitious, I suppose, as, as time went on. So as I started off, I was looking mostly at um, sort of government records, uh, trying to figure out how did customs work, how did immigration work, um, and then I moved into uh, the records that, that sort of form the core, the nucleus of the book, which is a lot of oral histories, hundreds of oral histories and diaries and personal correspondence, the sort of nuts and bolts that, that make this border's lived experience really shine. 
In terms of models, you know, this book wouldn't have been possible, I don't think, 15 years ago. There are dozens of scholars who have done just amazing work on each of the individual pieces that make up this book. So Beth Lou Williams' work on Chinese immigration and Erica Lee's work, um, you know, Michelle Hogue's work on the Métis, uh, David McCready's work on the Sioux. There's, there's dozens of these books all across all of these different pieces that have done this really wonderful job explaining how the border works in a specific region or for a specific people. And what I was uh, running into as, as sort of the fundamental research challenge was that the, the, the accounts that I was reading on the West Coast didn't match the accounts I was seeing in the prairies or in the Great Lakes. They didn't match across time and they didn't match across communities. And this convinced me to start looking at two different kinds of sources to try and pin this together. So one, like I said, is sort of the, um, the individual records of, of people's lives, the diaries, the personal correspondence, letters between families, that kind of thing. And the second was to zoom out all the way in the exact opposite direction and try and understand if you were to map the border in its practical implementation, what it would look like. So if you mapped all the soldiers, the Northwest Mounted Police officers, the customs agents, the immigration agents, what does that border look like? And how does changes in government shape the stories that I'm seeing on the ground? And that was really interesting in a number of cases where, you know, as a historian, one of the challenges you run into is that you never know if the records that are missing from an archive just were never created or if they were destroyed or lost at some, some period of time. And so I was really struggling to find customs records, for example, in the prairies. And by mapping the personnel, I realized that there weren't any records to be had because there's almost no one being stationed in that, in that region. It's, it's a handful of people, you know, the size of like a baseball team who are managing this, this massive amount of space. And so that really helped me figure out why there were so many gaps in the records. And in many cases, it wasn't because records were lost. It's because there was no one there to, to gather that information. And I, the border itself looks more kind of like Swiss cheese when you start to map this and you realize how limited federal power often was. Now, as you've mentioned, an important part of this book is about the indigenous lands that spill across this boundary and the indigenous peoples who lived on both sides of the Canada-U.S. border or who traveled regularly across this, this border. Uh, this is a kind of a mobility that differed from the settlers on both sides of the border. You yourself, uh, you're, you're a dual citizen uh, with mixed heritage. To what extent was your personal history a part of the reason you researched and wrote this particular book? Yeah, so this is going to sound very weird uh, because in hindsight, of course, I wrote this book. You know, I, I, you know my, my life is filled with mobility, but um, when I was younger, I, I desperately wanted to do uh, the Russian Revolution or um, um, medieval history. I had absolutely no interest in Canadian history. I had very little interest in even modern history. Um, and I sort of stumbled into this project by accident. I was working with um, uh, Chris Inwood and Michelle Hamilton on a census project. Uh, and as part of that work, I had an opportunity to try to rebuild mobility using the census. The census is really interesting because the census tells you when children are born. And so at least for reconstructing the mobility of women, especially indigenous women, you have a sense of where they are at multiple times in their life, right? They're going to be there for their own children's birth. And so it sort of started out as a, a small project like that. 
Um, and originally my work was going to be all on the census. And as weird as this sounds, um, during my PhD, that ended up becoming an 80-page appendix that didn't even make it into the final book. Um, so, so the project, I guess, began looking at um, these sort of unique pieces. How can you use the census to rebuild mobility? It, it, does, it didn't actually come out of my personal interest, although, like I said, in, in hindsight, that's surprising. You know, I, I spent my entire childhood moving back and forth across the border, living with people who were um, all over from Canada and the United States. Um, and I think that that changed how I thought about the book. Um, and maybe some of the directions I went and some of the questions I asked. Um, but like I said, as weird as it sounds, that history wasn't the initial impetus for getting into this specific topic. But you must have been propelled there, obviously, through your personal history to some extent. You describe it as a very intuitive process, but uh, there must have been a point where you saw it much more explicitly. I, I think for me, what it... What my background encouraged me to do was to look a little bit more closely at ambiguity. That I think when borders are built, there's an idea that they divide people cleanly. That, you know, some people become Canadians, some people become Americans. Um, but as someone who, who lived and grew up, you know, uh, in the border shadow, you know, so I was born in Lethbridge, Alberta. I moved to Minnesota when I was young. I moved to BC, back to Minnesota, to Toronto, back to Minnesota, um, and then ended up in Guelph, Ontario. And all of that was before grade five for me. You know, so my entire childhood was in flux. And, you know, I, I, I think to some extent I can't help but, but be interested in other people whose lives span this border in all sorts of interesting ways. And to try and figure out, you know, where did this border come from? And why is a border that so many people have spent so many millions of dollars enforcing still so loose in some respects by the time I was born, and yet so punishingly powerful in these moments of time that I, I would see throughout the history? Now, there's always been a contrast between national borders um, before 1867, the British-U.S. border, and after uh, the Canada-U.S. border, that on the one hand, and Indigenous borders on the other. Has this difference grown or diminished with time? Yeah, so another, another sort of really provocative idea. You know, it's, it's interesting. Indigenous borders, I think, are a lot more intuitive in many cases than the ones that Europeans will draw. Their borders, um, and it obviously there's hundreds of groups and each one will do this differently, but most of the time borders are, are set around key areas, places where food can be gathered, ceremonial sites, um, things like that. Europeans have this really weird habit of drawing them along lines of latitude. Um, and you can imagine, right, that, that's just an arbitrary line. It cuts across, it's across mountains, it ignores rivers, ignores its geological and cultural and linguistic zones, right? The, the reason that you want a border like this, if you're a European diplomat uh, in the 19th century, is they're easy to draw. They require absolutely no geographic knowledge of the region that you're claiming. And that will get them into all kinds of trouble later on. Rivers that they think connect and will be based in their treaties won't actually connect. And so you have these two different ideas about territory, one far more abstracted, one a little bit more practical. But in the end, these are fundamentally about controlling land, people, and resources. 
uh, and they'll, they'll become more divergent over time in terms of their unique development. Um, but the Cree, for example, will defend their territory militarily, as will the United States. Um, both um, indigenous groups and European groups will use um, their boundaries to control resources and people. Um, although the way they do that is obviously quite different. So I think they become a little bit more divergent over time. But even within the European system, there are older ideas of territory, especially in Europe, less so in North America, that allow for overlapping boundaries, ecclesiastical boundaries, right, religious boundaries overlapping with princely boundaries, overlapping with other boundaries. And that, that's a little bit more in common with um, the ways a lot of indigenous people would, would recognize land. So I think they become more divergent over time, but I think it is, I, I think the core idea behind boundaries is sometimes much more similar than I think uh, we give credit for. Early on in the book, you introduce us to the Oregon boundary dispute. Uh, I was wondering if you could briefly describe the history of this dispute and the extent to, to which its resolution gave greater definition, at least from the perspective of British and American governments, to the border between British North America and the United States. Yeah, so the, the Oregon boundary dispute is a, a diplomatic dispute over land that's on the Pacific coast. So we're, we're mostly talking about present-day British Columbia uh, and Washington with, with some tag-ons in some of the southern areas as well. And this is, this is an issue that is a long time coming. So there's a, there's a number of European groups who claim this territory at one point or another uh, in their histories, and these uh, claims become consolidated over time. But keep in mind that all of this is indigenous land, and all of this is area that, of, of territory that Britain, Canada, Russia, um, the Spanish, have only a rough idea what's actually within it. So they're, they're making these sort of clumsy treaties over territory that they only kind of understand. So these countries are signing treaties over land they don't know well and over areas that they certainly don't control. And this leaves the land, at least from a European perspective, in this sort of vague and indeterminate state. So Britain and the United States will leave this area under joint management until there's an impetus to resolve the matter. And that becomes uh, more and more clear that this needs to be resolved by the 1840s as thousands of American settlers are moving into the region. So Britain and the United States decide it's time to try and sign this treaty, clarify ownership over this land, but they are wildly off base in terms of what uh, they believe each should own. So the American claims uh, push the American claims all the way up to close to present day Alaska. And the British claims uh, include all the way down to Washington state. So they're, they're not even within you know, the same order of, of magnitude in terms of what they want. So this is a problem. Now, it's worth keeping in the back of your mind that all of this land is indigenous land. And so this is sort of a, a European treaty being negotiated over, um, over territory and yet the treaty signed anyways. But, but there's some problems. So it's an agreement on paper rather than in practice, and both countries are, are struggling to even pinpoint something as simple as where is the path going to follow um, through the Straits of, of Juan de Fuca, which is near Vancouver Island. So there's a number of different islands. And so these negotiations are all about, you know, which one of these channels actually fits 
the treaty that we signed. And so it's going to take almost another 30 years uh, with international arbiters to even resolve some of these most basic questions about territory, because the maps that they're building these territories off of, the language that they're using is, is so just impossibly vague. So while treaties like this one in the long run will help clarify territorial orderings um, you know, to, to this day, in the short term, you know, I, th I think we sometimes put more emphasis on them than they actually mattered, right? It takes, in many cases, 20 or 30 or 40 years later before we see the kind of practical change that you'd expect would happen right at the signing of a treaty, right? It takes quite a bit of time to wrest practical control from the Coast Salish and the other groups whose land this is their home, and that will require often an entirely separate treaty process between a federal government and indigenous nations to clarify some of those relationships. In your account of the Dakota War during the Civil War in the United States and its aftermath, you describe how one Dakota group escaping the American army moved north across the border, first to present-day Portage La Prairie, Manitoba, and then on to what would become known as Prince Albert, Saskatchewan. All of this land, of course, was then in the possession of the Hudson's Bay Company. Can you summarize how the border had long-term consequences for the Dakota peoples who would, in the decades following uh, this movement be relocated to Canadian reserves? Yeah, so the Dakota War is this, this moment of extreme suffering. Um, you know, Carol Chomsky, uh, who's a legal historian, estimates that, you know, some close to 400 settlers will die in this, this violence. Um, uh, 300 plus Dakota are sentenced to death. Many of these sentences are commuted um, by uh, Abraham Lincoln because the uh, lots of reasons, but the court cases are sometimes only five minutes long. And it leads to the largest mass execution at the time in American history, 38 Dakota are hanged. And so being Dakota south of the border becomes an extreme liability. So if these, these executions, if they had a, a real finality to it and, and really sort of um, punched home how dangerous it was to be indigenous south of the border, you know, the Dakota are going to relocate in all different kinds of directions. Parents are going to lose contact with children, um, and many are going to relocate north of the Canada-United States border to try to get away from the American military. And this itself is a really dangerous journey. Um, but one quick aside is this is not the first time the Dakota had, had, been ex had, had sort of been in this area. Oral accounts by Melvin Little Crow, for example, note that they were always in this country, that is Canada, back in the times that there was no border. They hunted all over the place and journeyed north of the present-day border as well. So this is, this is land that the Dakota knew, and in many cases they're moving, not, um, not in the sense that we think of as an international refugee, but moving within their homelands, moving within lands and kinship circles that they know, trying to find an area where they can be without being harassed constantly by the American military. And this is a hard journey, right? We're, we're talking about from Minnesota all the way up into northern Saskatchewan. In some cases, this is a journey that takes um, seven years to make. Uh, Levon Swenson and her, and her relatives take that long, eating dried berries and food along the way. This is, this is a monumental undertaking in the 19th century. But even relocating that far north, 
the region still the life still remains precarious. The Canadian government uh, to this day continues to argue um, that Dakota are, are refugees, they're, they're American refugees. You see this throughout all of the correspondence that's being sent by Indian agents, you know, totally missing the fact that Dakota have a much more broad territory than either the Canadian or American government is, is willing to admit. Uh, and this idea of being sort of a refugee within your own homeland follows the Dakota uh, into the present. You can see it in the way that they're treated by other Indigenous communities. You can see it in um, something as simple as the land acknowledgement or absence of land acknowledgements. Um, you can see it in legal cases that Dakota have been fighting for decades now, um, probably more than a century now, to get proper recognition within Canada. And that, that stigma of being somehow American, a border that they did not choose in the first place, still hangs over them to some extent. Um, it, it's something that I think both governments need to get better at. By 1874, as you noted in the book, stone cairns and iron posts marked out the uh, Canada-U.S. border from one coast to the other. And uh, by the 20th century, of course, there was considerably more infrastructure in terms of border stations and personnel. Yet you describe the Canada-U.S. border as constructed by the federal governments in both countries as fluid, unmanageable due to sheer size, unstable, as well as being an uncertain impediment to Indigenous people. Can you uh, provide us with a couple of historical episodes to illustrate what, what you mean by these descriptors? Because they're not normally applied to the Canada-U.S. border. Yeah, so for Canada, early on, one of the the sort of ironies of this, the, the, the Northwest Mounted Police are, you know, there's sort of that, that old story of, of them being sort of the vanguard of Canadian nationalism, and that the border is, is really this, this key piece of Canada's national identity, along with the railway, the Northwest Mounted Police, and, and other pieces. But almost all of this ends up being dependent fairly heavily on American infrastructure. So when the Northwest Mounted Police are, are setting out, they take American railways part of the way. When they're getting supplies, it's American railways and American merchants and, and carts from places like Fort Benton bringing supplies up to feed the sort of vanguard of Canadian power. When they need to send messages, it's American telegraph networks that send it back. You know, So everything from the letters from family to Christmas dinner is coming through these American networks, which puts the Canadian government in a somewhat awkward position. If this is going to be Canada showing its control over territory, the fact that so much of this is reliant for, for years at a time on uh, American infrastructure is a little bit worrying. One of the other ways that I think you can sort of appreciate how uncertain an impediment this is, is just how much suffering the original border guards who are placed out, uh, especially in the prairies, experience. So soldiers are reliant on food either from indigenous communities or from the United States. And it's, for those of you who don't know Saskatchewan well, uh, which is where I'm living, it gets cold. It gets very, very, very cold. Uh, you know, temperatures drop into the minus 30s regularly. And these soldiers end up burning endless cords of wood, so much wood just to stay warm that they're getting pneumonia and other respiratory illnesses. So you can imagine that on a practical level, soldiers who are frozen, stiff, huddled around a fire, coughing, aren't exactly the strongest border guards. And, and the, the life that these, these men are living, whether you're a customs agent or an immigration agent, 
is, is lonely. You're often ostracized by those around you, um, people who have lived their lives and, and make their livings crossing the border. And many of them will desert their posts. And the sort of grand irony is you have all of these unhappy soldiers and Northwest Mounted Police officers who want to desert, and then you're stationing them right next to the border that if they cross, they can sort of escape this kind of life. And so large numbers of soldiers and Northwest Mounted Police officers who are supposed to be guarding the border are actually deserting. And then the question is, who do you send to bring them back? Their friends who are also unhappy and undersupplied? Right? That's a, that's a risk that more people are simply going to leave. And so in some cases, they send Indigenous scouts to bring back what is supposed to be the sort of vanguard of Canadian and American power to bring these men back um, to stand trial. So what you have is, in many cases, these sort of clumps of power, these places where soldiers congregate, where the patrol routes are, are very frequent, but there's long gaps in between them into the 20th century. And so, you know, for those who are interested in smuggling, this is not a particularly difficult terrain um, to, to uh, escape detection in. It's very, very complex. Uh, BC has just an endless series of islands. Uh, and so this very understaffed force, even into the 1930s, is struggling to keep up. And so when they catch people, the, the punishments can sometimes be devastating. But, but they know very well that they're only catching a fraction of the number of people who are uh, crossing illegally or, or bringing goods across. Well, as time flows through the 20th century, civilian border guards and, and civilian um, customs agents and others replaced soldiers in the Northwest Mounted Police. What were the implications for those crossing the border of this change uh, to a civilian order? The, the, the exact timing of this is surprisingly tricky to pin down. So there's a number of, of sort of major pieces of legislation. So the, the Posse Comitatus Act in 1878 in the United States. So this is um, a ruling that essentially says uh, military are no longer able to do domestic enforcement, right? And the question is, does this apply to the border? And if so, to what extent? For indigenous people, rulings like this don't seem to take in effect right away, certainly not for decades after. Soldiers will continue to police the border. They'll continue to evict um, indigenous border crossers and, and merchants and, and whatnot. And in Canada, the, the question of, you know, when does it translate from a military to a civilian border guard is even trickier to pin down because you have this really weird amalgam called the Northwest Mounted Police. They're sort of part-time police, part-time soldiers, part-time justices of the peace, they do customs work, they do immigration work. There's sort of this awkward catch-all that combines all of these sort of different pieces rolled into one. From the sort of British military perspective, this transition happens sometime around the 1870s, although the last British garrisons are moved out of Canada around 1906. So it's this more like 40-year time period where a very slow transition is happening, a sort of move increasingly towards civilian personnel and away from from military. And the transition is, I think, a really important one. There's a greater focus once you have civilians on policing the border in a comprehensive sense, rather than just dealing with individual diplomatic fires as they break out. Right? The idea that you would go to an airport today, for example, and you just expect to see a border guard if you're entering another nation. Right? That's one of the legacies of that kind of movement. 
You also see the increasing use of, of career civil servants who spend much of their life in that specific area doing that specific job. And part of the challenge is that's needed because the laws get so unbelievably complicated that you need someone with you know 20 or 30 years of experience sometimes to just sift through the, the, the endless array of customs laws that, that pertain to the border. And one of the sort of silly examples is, you know, when does a apron become a luxury good? You know, is it when you embroider it? Is it when you put sort of tassels on it? You know, when does a garden bean cease to become a seed, right? There's, there's all different ways you can interpret all of these different goods. And over time, as the countries try and deal with um, sort of local issues, they end up with an almost unmanageable bureaucracy where more and more civil servants are needed. Um, but for everyday people, the big transition is just more and more control over daily life. You know, instead of a handful of soldiers, instead you have customs posts and immigration dotting most of the regions by the 1930s, and you see an increased focus on documentation, something that we have the legacy of today. So passports, customs slips, things like that, that it's not enough to simply have a right to cross a border. Now you need a documented right as well. And that's one of the big transitions that you can see carry on into the present. In your epilogue at the end of the book, you write about Joseph Dixon. He's a Montana congressman who makes a formal resolution uh, in 1903 for the U.S. to build an electrified barbed wire fence marking out the border from Lake of the Woods in northern Minnesota and western Ontario to Point Roberts on the west coast. You then relate this to the more contemporary effort by Donald Trump to build a border wall based on his belief that and I quote, uh, we don't have a country if we don't have borders. Now that came from Donald Trump, but that's a view held by many, many people. You relate this notion to borders in the rest of the world in this epilogue. So tell me more about your thinking behind ending this, this book with this very uh, wide open epilogue. Yeah, so one of my hopes is that this book will be of interest to people beyond just those interested in, in Canadian history or American history, that there's something really interesting and unique about borders in general. You know, I think these are, are foundational to our, our sense of identity, right? Our sense of belonging. And what I find so interesting when you look across the rest of the world is on the one hand, you would think that borders should matter less and less with each passing year. The internet has connected us in ways that is unimaginable years before. I can have a real-time conversation with a friend who's living in Japan. You know, you can travel the world very quickly with airplanes. But on the other hand, borders seem to be being reinvested in at a staggering rate. Around the world right now, you're seeing concrete, steel, and barbed wire fences dotting many nations' borders. You know, the U.S.-Mexico is the one that I think Canadians know the best, but you see that with Israel and the West Bank, Saudi Arabia and Iraq, India and Bangladesh, Greece and Turkey. Elizabeth Vallée has done some really interesting work on this, and there's actually four times more border walls today in the world, uh, around 65, than there were when the Berlin Wall existed, uh, around 16 at the time. So if globalization seems on the surface to be making our world more open to many things like international travel, the investments that many countries are making to their physical border seems to suggest something else entirely, 
that is that borders are not going away and they may actually becoming more and more important as time passes, not less important. Well, Ben, on that note, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. My guest today was Benjamin Hoy. He is the author of A Line of Blood and Dirt, Creating the Canada-United States Border Across Indigenous Lands. This book was published by Oxford University Press in 2021. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca. The best way you can support this podcast is by becoming a subscribing member of the Champlain Society. If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. We want to thank the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, the University of British Columbia Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Greg Marshaldon. This interview was recorded on November 16th, 2021. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt.